Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Roger Hallam, the co-founder in 2018 of Extinction Rebellion, was recently released after nearly four months in jail. He was in prison for making a 20-minute speech on Zoom. He was arrested and jailed because he called for civil disobedience by climate activists, specifically the blocking of major road networks in London. Hallam is one of the most important and fearless leaders in the climate movement. He was arrested in 2017 after spray-painting King's College, London's Great Hall. He was charged with criminal damage and fined 500 pounds. He was later cleared after a court ruled his actions were an appropriate response to the climate crisis. He led the occupation of a number of public sites in London in April 2019 and sit-down protests on major UK highways in the fall of 2021. Activists from his group Just Stop Oil glued their hands to the wall after throwing tomato soup at Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers, which was covered by protective glass, at the National Gallery in London. Just Stop Oil activists have also spray-painted a number of landmarks, including the Home Office, the Bank of England, and Austin Martin showroom and the rotating sign outside Scotland Yard. Two supporters of Just Stop Oil were arrested recently at the Herbert Museum in Coventry, demanding that the government stop all new UK fossil fuel projects and calling on employees and directors of UK cultural institutions to join in civil resistance against the government's genocidal policies. Hallam has carried out two hunger strikes and been in prison three times in the past three years. The Metropolitan Police, in his latest arrest, accused Hallam and Just Stop Oil of planning, quote, reckless and serious public disruption. The British High Court, in an effort to prevent further acts of civil disobedience, has issued an injunction to prevent Just Stop Oil protesters disrupting the flow of traffic. Blocking traffic or assisting anyone who blocks traffic now means activists can be held in contempt of court and face imprisonment, an unlimited fine, and the seizure of assets. But as Hallam and Just Stop Oil warns, humanity is at risk of extinction, and so is everything we have ever created. Our works of art, our favorite novels, our historical buildings and artifacts, our traditions, we're terrifyingly close to losing everything we value and love. We cannot rely on our criminal government or our cherished institutions to save us. Our government knows that new oil and gas means a death sentence for billions. Yet, they are continuing with plans to license over 100 new fossil fuel projects. This means more heat waves, more crop failure, and more death. It is criminal, an act of genocide against billions of people in the poorest countries on earth, and an act of war against the young. Either you are actively supporting civil resistance, Hollam goes on, fighting for life, or you are complicit with genocide. Joining me to discuss the climate emergency and what we must do to save our species and most other species on the planet is Roger Hollam. So, Roger, I don't want to tick off climate statistics, um, but just briefly, uh, you have often made the point that since the first COP uh, was convened in 1992, uh, carbon emissions have steadily gone up, I think, by over 40%. Um, it, it, the, the statistical evidence 
is clear that the ruling elites uh, have failed to address the climate crisis. So before we go into our discussion, just lay out where we are. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having a chat with me. And hello, everyone. Um, yes, I think we're 30 years down the line, aren't we? Uh, those of us that are in our 50s have known this or adult lives that scientists told us in, what, 1990, in no uncertain terms, that civilization was going to collapse if we carried on putting carbon into the atmosphere. Since 1990, it's actually over 60% increase in carbon emissions globally. Um, and every year that goes by, we get more and more information on it. So at this stage of the game in 2023, we are now um, have locked in catastrophic social unrest and uh, suffering on an unimaginable scale. And we can have a rather obscene intellectual argument about exactly how much suffering and when and where. But as we were just saying before, I think at this stage, the issue is what we, what we need to do about it as human beings and as members of our communities and of our traditions. And, um, and we know enough to make some serious decisions, I suppose. Before we begin with what we should do, uh, let's talk a little bit about the ruling elites and their response, because it really breaks down into two camps. One, uh, uh, climate a deni a denial that there is a crisis or that we can somehow adapt. Yeah, well, I think actually the division is between, you know, to put it classically, between reformism and revolution. Um, and to give a precise definition of that, reformism uh, believes that you can make changes in an existing social and political system to in ensure that life carries on in a reasonable way. And the revolutionary position is that the system itself is, is incapable of fulfilling, you know, the most basic requirements of human society. And it's either going to collapse and or it needs to be changed as a system in itself. And I think it's important at this stage to make clear that it's not, it's not a project about the climate. <laughs> you know, the whole framing of this around the climate um, is really a way of being duped by the corporate class. You know, the corporate class invented this phrase, climate change, you know, global warming and all the rest of it. And this framing has led the progressive class and the radical left and all the rest of it down this rabbit hole of thinking we're dealing here with some technicality. We're not. What we're dealing with here is a project of murder by the elites of the most uh, vulnerable and marginalized people on the planet. And the nature of that murder is that they believe that they have a right to continue their, their enactment of their power and their privilege. And if millions and potentially billions of people die, then that's an acceptable cost um, in order for them to maintain the status quo. And as we all know, you know, elites throughout history have engaged in this gambit, as it were, uh, and they regularly kill 
people en masse in order to maintain their, their regime and their power. So in other words, how we need to frame this is, is, is not some unique you know, episode which has a technical solution, as the NGOs would like to say. What we need, how we need to frame this is in a 2,000-year history, you know, maybe longer than that, of, of elites manipulating societies to extract power and materials and prestige, and as a byproduct of that, enslaving, killing, raping, you know, all the rest of it, uh, millions of people in order to maintain their system. And as we know, this is a big cycle, you know, at, at the beginning of an elite cycle, the elites are, you know, arguably quite good at ruling, and then they get lazy, and then they get arrogant, and then they become like suicidally stupid. And then there's a big revolutionary episode, you know, a series of wars, social breakdown, and then the process starts again. And the big uniqueness of this situation we're in today is not that this is something unique in the sense that the elites are trying to destroy civilization. It's that this is now global. In other words, that's not like situated in America or in Africa or in the Middle East. It's the whole world. And if we get this wrong and we allow the elites to continue, then we are looking at effective human extinction or absolute human extinction. And we really, I think, do not need to enter into this obscene discussion, intellectual discussion about, you know, at what point and what the probability is that we're heading for extinction. All we need to know is that it's a real and substantive possibility. And as I say, the next question is, is, okay, so how do we actually respond to this on many different levels? You've been very critical of environmental GEOs, and, and nonprofits that have confronted this issue, uh, climate activists. I think you started out as part of a mainstream climate activist. Um, explain your critique of the traditional groups, uh, Greenpeace and all these other groups uh, that uh, purport to deal with this issue. Well, let let me say first of all, right? You know, I'm I'm primarily a scholar and an analyst. I, I'm not particularly ideologically pro or anti-revolution or reform. What, what I'm, I'm trying to make a structural argument that at certain periods of history, the reformist logic makes sense. You know, the 1990s arguably wasn't a chance in hell for being a revolution in the Western world because this system was sustaining itself for intensively purposes quite well, you know, in its own terms. But in the 2020s, we're in a fundamentally different structural situation that we're looking at a coincidence of massive ecological like crises all coming together and compounding together. And that the system itself is not moving fast enough and is incapable of moving fast enough because as a reformist logic. Now, once you've made that analysis, then it becomes clear that the whole environmentalist frame is rooted in a reformist logic. In other words, what the environmentalist orientation is saying is there's an environment out there which is separate from society and it's got a few problems and a few issues and we should have a campaign about it 
and you know we'll remove this bit of pollution or we'll remove you know these people killing the species or what have you now that's all well and good in a reformist period but in a revolutionary period that we're in now like the whole the whole approach is at best deluded and at worst like a, a complete betrayal of the moral emergency that we're in you know it's like analytically stupid <laughs> if you see what i mean it's like this this is no longer the issue the center of our analysis has to be the political structures which have enabled this catastrophe to happen and how we're going to remove that so this is why i've never called myself an environmentalist and i'm not involved in a campaign as such what we're involved with in here is a series of collective moves that are going to come together to produce a completely new political and social regime not because we're mad idealists or you know romantic revolutionaries because we're realists and we know that if we don't sort this out in a holistic sense you know politically socially spiritually we're simply not going to sort anything out and i think this is a realization that is exponentially increasing around the western world and and globally which is there's no point doing a little thing here and a little thing there because it's all fucked you know it's like it has to all change uh, otherwise nothing's going to change and people were saying this you know 10 20 years ago but it's like self evidently obvious at, at this moment in time so let's talk about confronting this system and i want you to address two points when you are effective and i think many of the actions you've taken have been effective at disrupting the system the system becomes more draconian in terms of its forms of repression which is why you were put in jail for about 4 months for a zoom meeting uh and uh and then talk about the tactics themselves what works you yeah, well the first thing to understand in my view is is that the state always responds to a challenge i mean a real material challenge with repression and this is the logic of the state it's not an ideological point it's not if it's a liberal state or an authoritarian state all states uh have a regime and that regime will move towards repression if it's materially challenged and this comes as a surprise to many people because you know they have this rather naive idea that in a liberal democratic state the state won't move towards an authoritarian orientation when uh the shit hits the fan as you might say and we see this very clearly in the UK at the present time that the british government has now been structurally challenged by civil dis- massive disobedience now from since 2019 I mean in the last year there's been over 2000 arrests. I mean this is in a country with 50 million population so you're thinking about the US you're looking at you know 10000 arrests or something like that. Um and 150 people have been to prison. More people have been to prison for political activities you might say than any time since the suffragettes in the early 20th century. So in response to that the the government has introduced legislation which is not dissimilar to Belarus <laughs> you know uh you can't you can't have a demonstration in the UK now without permission and they're not going to give permission a lot of the time 
And so they can arrest you just for having a march. If you go on a Zoom call and say you're going to organize a march, you can be arrested for conspiracy. If you stand up in court and say, I want to mention the words climate change, then you can be accused and convicted of contempt of court. So a colleague of mine was in prison for 10 weeks for saying to the jury that he wanted to tell them about the climate. Uh, a woman the other day was sent to the Old Bailey, the biggest court in the UK, simply for having a placard telling a jury that they have a constitutional right to overrule the judge, which is a fundamental you know, characteristic of, of a liberal judiciary. Um, she is being referred up to um, the top court, one of the top courts in the country, and will be potentially given a jail sentence. All of that has changed in, in four years. And what we know, of course, is that the state will engage in even more draconian activity. So that's the first analytical point to make. The second point to make is that this is not necessarily, on an analytical level, uh, a bad thing. You know, obviously, morally and politically, it's an outrage. But in terms of designing social uh, change, radical social change, we have to understand that political change works because of repression. Uh, not despite it. In other words, what repression does is radicalizes a population. So, for instance, since I've got out, you know, become a lot more well-known, I've been on some chat shows, you know, there's been hundreds of people get involved. It's not putting people off. If anything, it's making it more clear to people that there's a clear, there's a binary choice. You're either going to sit there waiting to die, you know, and be miserable, or you're going to enter into a resistance space and what will be, will be. And you just need to look at the history of resistance struggles to see this dynamic happening again and again. Now, I want to be clear that that is, it doesn't mean that it's deterministically the case that we're going to win, right? That's not simply not the case. What we're saying is, is that repression itself is a key mechanism through which Political change often happens, not always, because, you know, it's a complex system out there. So we should be more nuanced in our analysis of, of the dynamics of, 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 of repression. And the critical challenge is not to just sit there and be miserable about it or criticize it, important as criticism is. What we have to do is design how we can create this backfiring effect whereby more and more people make that decision that, that they won't stand by and, and allow ourselves to descend into authoritarianism. And yet under totalitarian systems, you can, Stalinism, fascism, you can employ mechanisms of oppression that effectively quash all attempts at dissent. Well, that's not historically accurate. <laughs> okay. Um, that... The, 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 the key word in your sentence is all. So if you want to be historically accurate, you can say often. Right. There's a, dip, a big difference between often and all. Uh, and this is the point I'm making, is we should not fall into this, you know, rather self-serving leftist defeatism that the state and the capitalist regime is all powerful. No, it's powerful. There's, you don't need, you shouldn't put the all word in. Because that's not how human societies work. 
human societies are fundamentally indeterministic in the sense that you simply don't know. You simply don't know what's going to happen, which means you simply don't know you're going to win, but you simply also don't know you're going to lose. And, you know, as I said to Aaron on my Nabora um, interview, which you might want to watch, is, is the name of the game is to shake the dice. The more often that you can confront the state and the repression of the state, the more often that the state has to shake a dice on whether it's going to win or lose. Um, and that's, that's the project. And as we all well know, you know, authoritarian regimes regularly are subjected to uprisings and civil resistance and revolutions. Uh, so it's just basically historically accurate to say authoritarian regimes uh, make civil resistance impossible because simply isn't the case. Okay, I stand corrected. That's a good point. <laughs> um, let's talk about tactics. What, what do we have to do? Well, as, as I said, you know, I've sort of reframed this discussion a bit, but what we're looking at here is a fusion of the democratic critique, the social critique, and the ecological critique. So over the last 30 years, there's been various different elements of the progressive left space, and they've tended to be siloed into those three areas. You know, some people criticize how undemocratic the regime is. Some people are concerned about the, you know, tremendous inequality that's developed, and other people are obviously pointing to the climate catastrophe. Now, analytically, at this point in time, it's no longer useful or, or, or analytically correct to separate those three different things because they're massively coincidental. In other words, you know, for instance, the reason why we're not dealing with the climate catastrophe is primarily because we don't have effective democracies. The reason we don't have effective democracies is because we have elites. And one of the reasons we have, you know, suicidal elites is because we have extreme inequality. And you, you can spend all day, you know, you know, making connections between those three elements. It's not like one is foundational necessarily. But in terms of creating a revolutionary coalition, as it were, the framing of the project has to synthesize those three different elements into a single program and a single logic and a single vision. So that's not really my area of expertise, as you might say, but it's something, a project that people like yourself, Chris, and other people that, you know, frame the problems need to move towards. And I know you've done a lot of that yourself and other individuals have, but this be needs to become the new common sense of the left and, you know, ordinary people, as you might say. In terms of what I am more of an expert in, as much as I'm expert at everything, is in, is in the mobilization design. Now, the big issue here, Chris, is that, as we were talking before I came on, is that the, the left generally is concerned about things which have very little practical relevance. And all successful radical structural social change projects are based upon the notion of praxis. In other words, our theoretical discussion has to be rooted in the dynamics of mobilization, practical struggle. We don't want to be talking about China. You know, we don't want to be talking about 
what happened in 1917. What we need to be talking about is how do we get 100,000 people on the street in a disciplined, revolutionary, nonviolent, you know, ease of access way in the US to make a substantial, organized confrontation with, with the American regime? You know, I'm not saying for a minute that's the end of the story, but it's like a project. It's concrete. You know, it has different elements in, in it. And the interesting thing is that across the Western world now, there's been a transition from a sort of horizontalist dogma towards what you might call a functional hierarchy. In other words, organizational forms which hark back to what you might call the democratic um, socialism uh, before 1989. What we've done in the UK growing out of Extinction Rebellion is create projects, civil disobedience projects, that have central teams which are uh, self-consciously ethical and also have executive power of mobilization. Now, this is one of the biggest design challenges we have in, in Western society at the moment, is to make this transition. And what I would argue is this new form of organizational model, which doesn't revert to sort of, you know, some archaic Leninist nonsense, but, you know, doesn't endlessly re regress into the chaos of horizontalist, you know, confusion. Is, is the best of all worlds. No one's pretending it's perfect. You know, if someone's got a perfect organizational model, I'd love to hear from it. But what this has produced, interestingly, over the last 24 months, is the biggest civil resistance uh, episodes, the biggest climate campaigns, as you might call them, in Germany, France, Italy, the UK, and Sweden, and substantial campaigns in several of the Western democracies. And all this has been produced over 12 months. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that these are the campaigns that are going to lead this transformation, but they're interesting iterations because they point to solving probably the single biggest problem, which is how to create a co coherent strategic um, uh, formations in a postmodernist, you know, individualized, depressed, alienated societies that we have in the Western world. So the good news is, and this is the good news, Chris, <laughs> is we now have concrete methodologies to do this. Uh, and, you know, no doubt they can be improved and, and what have you. And what I would suggest is we need to build upon these social formations and create more of them and have synergistic relationships between them and learning relationships so that they can piggy jump over each other and sooner or later, one of them will be in a position to actually challenge a Western regime in the next two or three years. That's the project. And just to close, the goal, the goal is to carry out acts of civil disobedience that disrupt the system enough, that's why you block roads, to essentially weaken and cripple it. Is, the, is that correct? That's an initial iteration. What we have to re reinvestigate is the classical mechanism of revolutionary episodes in Western societies over the last 200 years. Not because we want to replicate them exactly, because, because obviously history never exactly repeats itself, but because 
there's certain patterns of strategy and organization which can be learned from. And the key learning, I think, is the synergy between a street movement and alternative governmental organizations. In other words, like an assembly structure and the street movement that protects that assembly. So what we're moving towards, I think, in several Western democracies at the moment is instead of asking the state to set up a citizen's assembly to deal with the climate or social questions, is to say to the regime, we are going to set up our own citizen's assembly as a permanent parallel institution selected by sortition by randomly from the population. And we, the demands of that assembly will become the program for a civil resistance organization that has a people's strikes and labor strikes around. So that we're not now, we're not at, at this point moving towards single issues. What we're looking at is a programmatic approach, which, and that program hasn't been put together by some small, you know, group of activists. It's come bottom up from ordinary people in, in a well-organized citizens assembly. And there's variations on the theme, of course, but you can see like this is a major move towards what you might call more serious revolutionary politics. And there's many, many details to be sorted out, but that's what I believe is the next step in the Western world is moving away from the climate, you know, the climate corporate agenda, as it were, and moving towards this fusion of street movements, civil resistance, and, and the, assembly, the assemblies. Yeah. Great. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.